Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org, also on BitChute. We're not on YouTube because I got kicked off that one for telling the truth. I have four other podcasts, The Learn Polish, The Speaking, The Meditation, and The Crypto. And I'm also a podcast coach, so I can help you get started with podcasting. And all can be found on ycon.com. Today is a difficult, hard story brought to you by a very brave father. Please welcome Scott Sarah. Sorry about the surname. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, right? It's it's Shara. Shara, sorry. I appreciate you having me. Um, I don't uh, want to have the title of brave because that title goes to God. He's the one that's allowing all of this to happen and for me to continue. So I I suppose I'll just hand over the the stage to you and you can just tell us your journey and then we'll we'll discuss your your beautiful daughter. Well, it sounds it sounds good. And as as we talk, uh, feel free to interrupt because if you have questions on your mind, that means your listeners also have questions on their mind. So just feel free to interrupt as I'm talking. We'll, we'll dive back in after I answer the questions that come up. So I'll just start with telling you about Grace. So Grace was 19. She had Down syndrome. And uh, Grace was a quite a gift. We had Grace, my wife Cindy and I, when we were 39 years old. Um, we had a, a gap of um, 10 years in between our daughter Jessica and Grace. Grace was born in 2002. And we named her Grace after God's grace. And God's grace was with her the whole time. It was, he gave us quite a blessing. You know, she was, the only way to make sense of this is that she was on loan to us for 19 years. And we had an angel walking around with us and uh, God chose to take her home early. And I, I don't know all the reasons, but I think partially is what you and I were talking about right before we got live, which is, this message, I believe, is going to save a lot of people. Uh, Grace was very high functioning. Um, we homeschooled her. My wife taught her how to read and write. Uh, my wife spent almost all the time with her. I, I worked way too much. And uh, we were thinking the, the purpose of me working hard was we need to leave a nest egg for Grace to be taken care of after we're gone. And, you know, so now we're using uh, our our money to spread the message because you, know, you can't take it with you. Uh, Grace was, um, Grace had a sense of God that, that uh, is, it, I have never seen it before. Uh, she called me earthly dad. So that gives you a perspective of what she knew about her relationship with her heavenly father, even young, at, at a young age. So she was six, seven years old. And uh, my wife and I got in an argument and she said, well, aren't you supposed to apologize? And uh, so then we both said sorry to each other. And then Grace wasn't satisfied with that because she knew it had to be in the heart. So then she said, well, aren't you supposed to kiss? And uh, of course, one of us was ready and one wasn't. <laughs> uh, she, uh, she had quite a sense of humor. If she met you, for the first time, Roy, she had this way of, of um, she loved everybody, but she just had this way of encouraging everybody that was uh, contagious. Uh, she had four, we had 400 people at Grace's funeral. 
she had a she had a following in our area. So back to if she met you for the first time, she would say, "Hi, handsome Roy," and I mean, it just creates this this uh, feeling inside of a person when they meet her. Then she would test. She would say she had a sense of humor, like I said, and then she would say, "Would you like to hear my dirty jokes?" And of course, you would say, "Well, yeah, of course, yes, I want to hear them." So she would tell you. Uh, why didn't the toilet paper cross the road? And then if you responded or not, she she wasn't going to wait. She said, because it got stuck in the crack. Then, then her second dirty joke was, have you read the book Under the Bleachers? And most people would say, no, I haven't read that book. And then she'd say, well, do you want to know who it was written by? And would say yes and she would say it's written by Seymour Butts so anyway she she was she was a blessing I taught her to drive a car that's how high functioning she was uh, and I just and for that, the just for the listeners because I've like totally gone into the website and you have some beautiful videos and what I could see from it is one your fantastic parents because you can see the love that you're doing you know you see it dancing with her and you can see her sense of humor you know she's like doing chewy tobacco the the guy from star wars and it's just so funny and like she was a big fan of elvis as well you might let people know about that oh my gosh yeah that was um so i want to just comment about being fantastic parents and then i'll talk about elvis because yeah, I would say that as a parent, I got about a C minus on a good day, and I want to get an A now. And relative to Grace, she was the easiest person to parent. So, I mean, you can't get an A when you don't have to do anything. I mean, every day was just a gift with her. So, I mean, it wasn't like she battled us, fought us. Uh, she just was, she was great. So it's, uh, you don't get any credit for loving the lovable. You get credit for loving the unlovable, which that's, uh, that only can be done through God's grace. Uh, anyway, her love for Elvis, I can't pinpoint how that started. Uh, but when, so I, I ended up getting serious radio in the, in the truck so that when her and I would drive him, it would go on the Elvis station at that time was uh, station 75. And I mean, we would be listening to Elvis all the time. And she uh, she could play Elvis songs on her on her violin. She played "I Can't Help Falling in Love" for my daughter Jessica's wedding. I've heard her that violin. it's actually beautiful. Yeah, didn't she do a great job? But I mean, the highlight of it, yeah, the highlight that this stuff would seem to always happen to Grace. She wrote a fan letter to Priscilla Presley, Elvis's wife, care of Graceland, and. That I think she did that when she was 13, maybe 14. And Priscilla called Grace. I mean, who does that? And she not just called her, she invited us to Graceland for a private meeting. So we drove to Graceland and, and we met with her for 45 minutes. There's, a, there's a, a tribute to that meeting on the website and a video of Grace and Priscilla together. Well, they became friends. They were emailing each other regularly. Um, you know, it just was, it was a special relationship. So uh, that was, it, it was something. I mean, she knew Elvis trivia. Uh, it's, it's uh, I think she could have matched with, with some of the Elvis trivia experts. We went to a lot of uh, Elvis entertainment concerts 
uh, we're the entertainment artists. I think there's, yeah, I know there's one of Grace dancing with an ETA three weeks before she died at her, it was at her 19th birthday. And I've seen another one where she's dressed up as Elvis herself. <laughs> and she's, she's, it's the way she kicks her leg, you know. To sort of, <laughs> yeah, and she could do the lip curl. And I know she, she just had it down. She was, she was something special. I, I, uh, I've never missed somebody like, like this. I mean, I really miss her. Uh, she was. She's, she's still with you. She's still with you. She's in your heart. It makes, uh, it makes telling the story easy because she loved me so much. She loved me even when I was a jerk. And which was most of the time. So this, uh, this story is easy to tell because I'm doing it in honor of her and in honor of, of our Lord. So uh, I can dive into the story if, if you want. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really wanted people to get, and I highly encourage people to go into the videos because you just get to understand what a beautiful person Grace was and know we get to know what what unfortunately has happened. Yeah, I mean they they took uh, they took a special uh, child out early, and I think that is one reason the story is gaining so much traction. Uh, you know, it's it's not gaining national media because this is too outrageous for them to cover. Uh, they're still even the supposed good sources of media that are national Newsmax and Fox, for example, I mean, they're advertising getting vaccine vac vaccinated in between their shows. I mean, so yeah, I think, I honestly think it's controlled opposition. I know you've got this, I won't name different people, but there's a lot of them that are out there pretending they're on the right side. But if you just Absolutely. take off a few layers, you realize that it's a smoke screen and they're just, they're trying to have, you know, controlled opposition, as I say. That's, I think that's spot on. I haven't heard that term like that before, but it describes what I believe perfectly. So we, um, jumping into the story, we were following the frontline doctor's protocol at home uh, before we knew Grace had COVID. And so that means we were on a, a series of vitamins, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, et cetera. And it was during the Delta variant. So this was last uh, October. Um, and we basically had made a decision that if any of us get a sniffle, we're going to just assume it's COVID. So Grace got a sniffle on September 28th. We got her on ivermectin right away. And October 1st, we were going to go to a wedding. And just because we didn't want to spread COVID, my wife went into town, got a home test. We tested Grace and she was positive. So we didn't go to the wedding. We didn't think anything of that because we were prepared and you know, we were all healthy. So we really didn't think, just thought we'll walk through it. Uh, Cindy got COVID a couple of days after Grace and Grace then couldn't maintain her oxygen above 90% on October 6th. So we went to the emergency room, uh, actually went to ER first, or not ER, the uh, urgent care first. And they did some blood tests and Ultimately, that led to a trip to the emergency room. One question people have asked is, what's the reason that Grace ended up in, in the hospital if you're on the frontline doctor's protocol? And 
I ended up in the hospital three days after Grace died with um, identical symptoms, but about three times worse. I just about died the first night. And after I got out and lived and we started doing research, one of the rabbit trails we went down was the why. Why did Grace and I both end up in the hospital, but Cindy didn't? Cindy maintained her oxygen above 95% the whole time. When I went in, I was at 84%. And Dr. Chetty, who's a doctor from South Africa, I think he's quite a pioneer because he went out on a limb. He built a tent in his own yard to treat people because the hospital wouldn't let him and started documenting the research. You know, there's several doctors that have done research. Dr. Peter McCullough wisely has pointed out that there's not a research component to this virus. I mean, the government, all they did was pay off hospitals to do the dirty work. There's no research money in this. So the, the pioneers like Dr. Chetty who have done the research. I mean, it's fantastic. Anyway, one of the things that he discerned in the research is that if there, people have a genetic disposition to produce inflammation or clots, that leads to low oxygen. And I have both of those. I knew that going into COVID. So Grace would have likely inherited that genetic disposition from me and would explain why both Grace and I ended up in the hospital where Cindy, whose symptoms were actually worse, uh, was able to maintain her oxygen at 95% plus the whole time. So now we're in the emergency room and you know Grace is stable. I mean, we're, we basically were, we started our time of goofing off together, but ultimately the emergency room physician recommended that we admit Grace to the hospital. And so then I said, I'll be staying with her. And they immediately said, you can't. I said, well, what's the reason? And they said, well, because we don't allow visitors on the COVID wing. And so then I said, well, I'll be taking her home then. And of course that, you know, right now in hindsight, I wish that they would have said, well, then take her home because I would have taken her home with a prescription for oxygen and a steroid and Grace would be alive today. Unfortunately, they came back two hours later and said, well, we, we made a decision that you can stay as long as you don't leave the room. So of course I wasn't gonna leave the room. So that was no problem. This is, you know, so there's a couple of take home messages right at this moment. So many people will end up in emergency rooms for various things. You know, this story is, is about COVID, but it really isn't about COVID because there's a lot larger agenda. So this story is exposing a larger agenda. And any of you who end up in the hospital or in the emergency room, you have a choice. And if I would have chosen to take Grace home at that point, she'd be alive. And you have that choice too. So don't be pressured to admit yourself to the hospital. And so that's, that's one piece. And the second piece is more important than the first. And that is just assume in your lifetime, you are going to end up in a hospital at some point. And so the time to vet or check out the hospital is not when you are in the ambulance on the way there, it's beforehand. You need to find out in your area what medical providers, what hospitals, what clinics are independent and are following the Hippocratic Oath and which ones have been bought by the government because your life will depend on which hospital you end up in. And I can give you a very specific example. 
the day that my wife drove me to the hospital three days after Grace died, the hospital I went to shares a driveway with a competing hospital. Their emergency rooms are right next to each other. And we turned into a hospital that was independent. And they saved my life. They knocked it out of the park. It's one reason I think I can tell this story objectively is because I saw what good treatment is like. If we would have went 50 feet and turned into the next driveway, I would have died because they were a system that was bought by the government. That's how important what I'm telling you is. And just on that, because I know of somebody in Poland, her husband was brought into the hospital and she's convinced he was murdered there in the UK, somebody else, her husband and my neighbor from Ireland, where I grew up, he didn't die, but his kids could see that basically he wasn't able to talk and they could see him going down and they basically just took him out and he's, he started to recover as soon as they got him away. So this is an international thing that the hospitals are involved in. They're loyal to the dollar, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, and we'll get to the, the why here. I mean, there's no doubt that the money um, was the grease that was used to, to make all this happen. And it, it's, it's sickening. Anyway, so now we waited back to October 6th. We waited about 10 hours in the emergency room and we got into Grace's room on uh, October 7th, about midnight. And my expectation then, I mean, it was just a naive expectation. I didn't realize that, that the hospital has an agenda at this point. I mean, and you, you kind of innocently trust the white coat. I had an overall distrust for medical providers, um, that type of thing, but not at the level where I thought they're going to kill her. But just based on prior experience, I had a, a, just an overall distrust. But I mean, the, the white coat phenomena is is alive and well and you know I fell trapped to it no doubt about it and anyway my attitude on October 7th the first day was I just thought well Grace and I are going to be in here for three four days and I'm just going to have a great time like a little mini vacation with my best buddy and that first day it was it hit the expectation perfectly I mean we we goofed off watch movies they had a great kitchen there. We could order right off of a menu like it's a restaurant. Um, I mean, we we were living it up. It was fun. Outside of the fact that, you know, Grace is in a hospital bed. Towards the end of that first day was, was um, they, they put Grace on what's called a high flow cannula, which that's a regular can, oxygen cannula. You got the two prongs up your nose, wraps around your ear. And... Um, for some reason, they they did the high flow cannula, and I wish I would have challenged that and, and knew better. I mean, after afterward, a lot of the research that we did points to the reality that Grace could have just been on the CPAP mask that she used for sleep apnea, and she likely would have survived in just with that because this this whole oxygen setup was that um, they used it as excuses and it took over breathing for her. So anyway, she got frustrated with that high flow cannula, which I think anybody would have. And so then I, with the help of two nurses, we got Grace situated with a BiPAP mask. And um, that was over a period of two hours we wrestled with her. I mean, it was, it was a, a little bit of a tough situation. And in fact, it was, 
at that point, I thought oxygen was so important to this because that's why we went in was low oxygen that I thought, I mean, we got to get the oxygen situated under. This is an emergency. That's my perception. So I told them that, I mean, if, if we can't get this done, we got to sedate Grace. We, we might have to um, restrain her. And then as we went, we did both of those. And, you know, I unknowingly thought that it was that necessary. So anyway, after it took a couple hours and then Grace, uh, she was great. I mean, just typical Grace. She, she realized she was, was bucking us and that I was just trying to help. And she gave me a big hug and said, I'm sorry, dad. And it was, it was just a neat moment. So then, you know, we, we got into the night and um, the alarms were going off like crazy. I asked the next morning, I, you know, the nurse, I, I said, can't you make these alarms go off at the nurse's station versus in the room? I said, they're going off 20, 30 times. And she said, no, we can't. And of course that was a lie. I didn't realize it was a lie at that time. Um, but when I went into the hospital, I asked for the same thing because you know, you, you've got to get sleep to recover. And they respected my wishes. So they didn't have any alarms go off in the room. So I asked, well, what, what is the reason these alarms are going off? And they said, well, every time Grace moves her arm, it sets off an alarm. I said, well, what's the reason? So you just picture this. They said, well, we put the IV in the crux of her elbow here. And I said, well, what did you do that for? And they said, well, it was the easiest place. So I mean, so it, it's, it was the overall level of care at this hospital, I would score a D minus. And that's just one example. I'm gonna give you a couple other ones. Um, there were times that there was some great care, but overall, I would say, you know, mainly it was an F, but the, the times when it was great care offset that and give them a D minus. But that was because there was an, an attitude of arrogance. I was taking notes, my background, is as a CPA. So as a CPA, you want, you know, you have notes and you have audit trails and things like that. So I was taking notes. So you might that. just let people know what a CPA is because they know that's an American term, but just for okay. international. And so a CPA is a certified public accountant. So essentially what it means is that you have gone to school, you've taken a written test and have worked uh, for a big firm underneath somebody smarter than you to train you, and then you become certified to practice public accounting. Uh, so then there's certain um, times when you have to have the CPA signature on, on documents to, to give them credibility. So anyway, that, that background, you know, I'd like to take notes and uh, ultimately, after you'll hear when I got taken out of the hospital by an armed guard as we tell the story, but the next day after I got, I was at home, I started transcribing my notes and I titled the paper 110%. And the reason I titled it 110% is because the, I probably heard 50 times from the nurses you know, that we're giving 110%. We've been doing this two years and we're giving 110%. You know, so that was just this attitude that was permeated throughout everybody that worked there. And, you know, I'm just a dumb dad and they didn't want to listen to anything. But, I, you know, I know if this is the easiest place to put an IV, but if the alarm was going to go off constantly, I'm not going to put it there because my patient has to get sleep. 
you know, so I might be a dumb dad, but I know that. So the next morning was October 8th. And this is a fairly significant day uh, because the doctor came in at eight o'clock in the morning and said, you're going to need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, what is that decision based on? And he said, well, we did a blood gas draw last evening. I said, well, what time? He said, 1130. And, and that was immediately after this event that I told you about with us getting Grace situated with oxygen. And at that time, Grace's numbers were, her blood pressure was 235 over 135 and her heart rate was 150 beats per minute. So I told the doctor that and I said, I don't think those numbers are objective. I want you to retake the numbers. So they took a new blood gas draw and Grace was fine. So we dodged the, dent, the ventilator bullet. At that point, I didn't know what a ventilator bullet even was. I went into the hospital with the paradigm that a ventilator is a tool in the tool chest for COVID. And that's because at the beginning of COVID, I think President Trump unknowingly told the country that we have a ventilator shortage. And so factories were converted to produce ventilators. Well, I asked the doctor, if, if we chose to put Grace on a ventilator, what's the prognosis? And he gave me a version of the truth, which he said, only 20% of people put on a ventilator walk out alive. Then I dug into it because I have my laptop there and I found out that the real numbers are closer to 15%. And factually, the 15% that walk out alive, most of them die in the first year because of damage done to the lungs. So my wife and I at that moment decided Grace is not going on a ventilator. I mean, that's crazy. And Grace never got to that point where she had a breathing problem, any of that. There'd be no reason to put her on a ventilator. But they pressed us four times after that for a, to give them a pre-authorization or a pre-approval to put Grace on a ventilator just in case. And just in case was if the hospital decided that it was necessary. And of course, you know, they're going to decide based on conditions that are financially beneficial to them, which I'll explain here in a minute, but the, um, they frame this discussion that these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. You know, so they, were, they had this sly way of trying to get you to pre-approve a ventilator. And this is how people get on a ventilator. You know, they're, they're, the family is unknowingly signing that right over to the hospital. And so then of course the hospital puts them on a ventilator probably inside of two seconds after they sign that, that release. Anyway, as, as I dove into the ventilator situation after Grace died, January 9th, God got me up at three o'clock in the morning and you'll see this on Grace's website. It's called the love of money. So that slide was put together that morning and I found out in studying that the hospital receives about $300,000 when they convince a patient or their advocate to put them on a ventilator. And where that number comes from is they get a $39,000 bonus from the government to put the patient on the ventilator. Then the patient has to be sedated, which is another bonus. And the room gets classified as an ICU room, which is another bonus. And the average amount of time a patient stays in the hospital on a ventilator is 22 days. So then 
with all the bonuses and the, the insurance reimbursement and the patient pay, it approximates $300,000 every time they convince you or the patient to basically end their life with a ventilator. It's sickening. I had heard that once they're diagnosed with COVID, it's something like 14,000. And I had heard about when they're put on the ventilator, but I didn't know the long-term thing. That's unbelievable. The next day, uh, and this, this next day, will show you how they set up the ventilator in their records. Because you think about one of the neat, well, not neat, it's not neat, but one of the unique situations with our story is that we were there I was an advocate from October 6th through the 10th. We had a 44-hour gap, which I'll explain when we get there. Then my daughter, Jessica, took over as an advocate. My wife couldn't do it because she had COVID at that time. We were there. They took Grace out while we were there. So think through what happens when there's no advocate in the room, which is 99-plus percent of the time. They have government bonus money. They have immunity from liability. And on top of those two things, they have a shroud of secrecy because there's no advocate in the room. So think through, if they wanna take out people in a hospital, it's the perfect opportunity because they got every single thing stacked in their favor to do this. And I have come to the conclusion that this is premeditated. Somebody on a podcast asked me that about a month ago and I, really drilled it down since then and i i've crossed the line now and think that grace's death along with a whole bunch of others are premeditated so it, this october 9th day will connect the dots for a lot of people when you look at the records and if you have a, a loved one who has died and you don't have the records yet i'd encourage you to get them um, because at some point there's likely going to be justice on a on a uh, worldwide basis and you know, if we band together, you got to have the records and you, you've got to transcribe the notes that, that you have in your head, transcribe them on paper. So, so this stuff can um, be stored and be ready at that time. So what happened on October 9th, Grace was hungry. I ordered food. I started feeding her. You know, Grace could obviously feed herself, but now with a BiPAP mask on. And a nurse came running in and said, you can't do that. And I said, what's the reason? She said, well, Grace's oxygen is only at 85%. And figuring I would get COVID while I was in the hospital, I had all of my COVID materials in the room. And one of the things I had was my own oxygen saturation meter. So I thought about what she said. I thought, this can't be true. It's impossible. Grace was in the high 90s in the emergency room on a regular cannula. Now we got a BiPAP mask on. And, you know, it's forcing oxygen. And so she can't be at 85%. So I put my meter on Grace's finger and it read 95%. So I called the nurse back in and asked her if my meter was accurate. And she said, yes, it is. And so then I said, well, why is my $50 meter reading at 95% and your $50,000 meters reading at 85%? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. And so then I said, if that is known, why don't you proactively change out those leads every three to four hours or whatever it takes so that you have an accurate reading? Since this is the primary statistic you're using to manage my daughter's care. And she snottily responded 
you should just be thankful you caught this. That's unbelievable. I got the records that the hospital sent to Medicaid, the billing, and found out that during that seven days, they only changed out the leads three times at a cost, build cost to Medicaid of only $78 a time. So that's crazy. So then we got wise to, you know, we needed to monitor, monitor Grace's oxygen on our own to make sure everything was fine. And, uh, you know, we, there's multiple times where we documented the differential was, was uh, substantial, you know, one or 2%, no biggie. But on Grace's last day, there was more than a 40 point differential. When they were taking Grace out, her oxygen was at 93%. Uh, an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half before Grace died, her oxygen was at 93% in the in the hospital meters. They had two meters on her. And they they were one of them read in the 60s and one in the 50s. You know, so you can't, you know, so what what would be the reason? Well, I, I believe it's so that they can tie together this string of events in their reports. Um, you know, they admitted faulty equipment, but why don't if you got faulty equipment, why not fix it? And I believe this, this faulty equipment idea is um, unknown and they're doing it on purpose because that way they can back up the decision to put Uncle Joe on a ventilator and the family's not the wiser. Um, um, with the equipment, because, I mean, obviously that's all orchestrated and everything. Uh, usually some equipment has to be certified, whether it's yearly or whatever, was there anything like that that you could check? I know it's very hard because you don't really know what's going on and you're kind of curious. So you were lucky that you had your own piece of equipment that you could actually, because 99.99% of people wouldn't even realize, they just assume that the equipment is correct. But you know, the reality yeah. is it's supposed to be certified that it's actually okay. And I even know that when you move equipment as well, you can actually, you can distort that, that if something is in, a constant location when it's certified and even by moving it you can adjust that but i mean does that is a massive difference you know you, as you say plus or minus even five percent you could kind of even allow for but that's scary Correct. yeah so i mean it, a lot of those things in hindsight like you're asking is you know do we have evidence of this evidence of that you know we you know you don't know your daughter's going to die at that time so you don't you're not you know, we, we have lots of evidence, but, you know, to take a picture of the last time the machine was calibrated and things like that, I mean, you don't, you really don't think of that stuff because you don't think at that point that their goal is to kill your daughter. If you thought it through at that level, I mean, there's a lot more documentation uh, we would have, but we have an overabundance of evidence. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic what we have as far as an eventual case, but, you know, um, I'm just thankful that we were in the room to be able to, to document what happened. So the next day was October 10th. That was a Sunday at seven o'clock in the morning. The head nurse came in with an armed guard and said to me, you need to leave immediately. This is probably the hardest thing for me to tell just because of, of what happened. And, you know, the excuses were, you know, this isn't hard to tell their excuses. They, she said, uh, well, you've been shutting off the alarms at night was one of the excuses. And so then I explained that the nurses trained me how to shut off the non-essential alarms because they're going off 
20, 30 times a night and many times it's 20 minutes for them to get in. And then second, she said, the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room, which obviously you can tell why, because I'm challenging the stuff that was obviously wrong. And, you know, they didn't want to hear any of that. They had their way of doing things and I'm just a dumb dad. And then third, which this third one is so laughable. She said, we suspect you have COVID. And when I say it's laughable is because they're the ones who told me I was going to get COVID. You know, of course you're going to get COVID. You're in isolation with your daughter who's got COVID. And, you know, so to tell me that, you know, and if they were so afraid of me getting COVID, why didn't they ask me if I had it? I, I tested myself at one o'clock in the afternoon on October 7th because I had a fever already. And I tested positive. I mean, they could have just asked me or test. They could have tested me. They have every test known to man in, in that hospital. So anyway, the arm guard then uh, walked me out to my truck and said. And was he aggressive to you or was he respectable? He was, I, he was very respectable. Um, and, and not respectable, but respectable. But what, what did you, what was he wasn't the, aggressive towards you? Like yeah. he was no, he in a human, you know, like he understood what was going on, basically. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was a decent human being. I mean, he walked me all the way out to the truck. And when we got there, he said, Scott, you need to take this to a higher level. And it's because he knew what happened there was not right. Anyway, what the reason I say it was, was hard is because, you know, I, I argued with this nurse, you know, you know, just, you know, not yelling at her, but, you know, arguing with her on these points. And, you know, I, I asked her, do you have children? Do you, you know, I, you know I, and I told her, I don't agree with unilateral decision-making. You know, a person has an opportunity to defend themselves. I mean, they'd had the decision already made. And I called an attorney friend of mine because she threatened to call the Appleton police. And he said, Scott, just leave peacefully. And uh, yeah, I talked with my wife. This whole exchange went for about an hour, and this was all in front of in front of Grace in the room. Anyway, when I as I left, I gave Grace a big hug, and it was the last time that I saw her physically alive. I I saw her alive via FaceTime calls afterward, but this is the last time I saw her physically alive, and I could just see how sad she was. Oh, then um, we had to hire Grace's special needs attorney to negotiate with the hospital attorney to get my daughter Jessica in as a replacement advocate. And this is it, the setup happened for Grace's death during this time. And I say that because we have all the records during the during that 44 hours. If you go back to October 9th, they put Grace on a sedation drug called Presidex. And, you know, what's the reason? There's absolutely no reason. You know, she didn't need to be sedated for anything. Anybody that knows a Down syndrome child, they're just, they're fun loving. And Grace was that way the whole time in the hospital. So why they put her on this, I have no concept other than to make their life easier or to set up what they did, Presidex, if you look at the package insert for that drug, the package insert is the rules they're supposed to follow. It says specifically to not use it for more than 24 hours. And 
the nurses who use it for anesthesia, it's an anesthesia drug to knock people out for surgery. They say to use it for no more than three hours. They had it, they had grace on it for four full days before her last day. During that 44 hours that we didn't have advocacy, they increased the dosage of Presidex seven times. That's insane. So and, they did it. And on, on the chart, because uh, I presume you see the information on the chart, do they have to state why they're doing it? Why they increase it and why they uh, you know, extend it to duration when it's recommended for three hours? Well, they, yeah, I mean, the problem with, with their reasons is they're all excuses. You know, they'll, they'll say that the patient is a fall risk or some other crazy, you know, it's, it's all justification, which unfortunately, when you, what we've learned is as you get to court, their records are like gold. Thankfully, we have records that are like gold also. And one of the, we had a medical malpractice nurse review those records. And when she saw what they did with Presidex, she said that that reality, they, she called it uh, chemically restraining grace. And that's how they set up killing her. So that fact will trump their, their lies that they put as the excuses. You know, and, and we were in there with grace other than that 44 hours. She didn't change in 44 hours. Uh, you know, they didn't want to deal with her. You know, it, they... And you'll see, you'll see why as we drill down some of the details of Grace's last day, because when we get to Grace's last day, I'm going to go through that fast and then just explain all the details that lead to uh, why I believe it was premeditated. So ultimately, my daughter, Jessica, got into the room and in spite of Grace being sedated, she was still normal. On Grace's second to last day, which was October 12th, Jessica, I mean, they just had a, a great day as sisters. Jessica monitored Grace's oxygen all through the night. It was 98, 99%. Before Grace went to bed on October 12th, uh, Jessica called her two boys, Grace's nephews, and she sat up in bed with the BiPAP mask on and, and hollered, hi, boys, as loud as she could so they could hear her. And she, you know, Grace was, she was so cute. Uh, Jessica would not let go of Grace while they were in the room together. So when bedtime came, Jessica pulled the chair up to the bed and laid her head on the bed next to Grace. And as Jessica said, it was, it's cute. If you had Jessica telling the story, she tells it better than me. She said, well, I had my, my head laid by Grace's butt and she kept tooting. And so she kept saying, she kept saying, sorry, Jess, sorry, Jess. Uh, you know, it's just typical Grace. I mean, she just, she was a great kid. So anyway, now we get into Grace's last day. And uh, do you have any questions before I go through that? Because I'm going to just run through no, that. No, no, keep going. Yeah, no, no. All right. This is, this is super important because this really lays out. And, and I want people to judge this after, after you hear it. Because when I say it's premeditated, that sounds out there. And as I originally told the story, I thought, well, this story is out there enough on its own, and there's a believability factor. So that's why we have the, the story documented in the tragedy tab on the website, because then you can see the original documents and also the documents where I 
I took literal items out of the records and it's all, it's all documented there. And you can see what I'm telling you is 100% the truth. Um, but it shouldn't be just because this guy is saying it. Look at the documents so that you see the evidence. So the, the doctor called Cindy and I at eight o'clock in the morning on Grace's last day. And the purpose of the call was to ask us for the fourth time for our pre-authorization for a ventilator. And again, we said no. And then he said, well, Grace had such a good day yesterday. We should put her on a feeding tube. And so we foolishly agreed to that. And, you know, Jessica had said how great of a day Grace had too. But you know, the reason the reason I say foolishly is hindsight's 2020, but more, you know, the feeding tube was necessary because it was self-inflicted by the hospital. They wouldn't let me feed her. They wouldn't let Jessica feed her. And the hospital staff was lazy at best relative to feeding her. They only fed her a few protein shakes. You know, Grace should have been fed the whole time. But now by that seventh day, she's malnutrition. Now she had a, a, a central line in so they could use TPN, but he really pushed this and saying that that central line could develop bacteria, blah, blah, blah. And so then we approved this. So now we're off the phone with him. About 8.30, Jessica says, oh, there was a 14-year ICU nurse in charge of Grace's care that day. That's significant. So when you hear the combination of meds that I tell you about, it was not a mistake. A 14-year ICU nurse is not going to make this mistake. On top of that, we've learned that for this combination of meds to be used, an alarm will go off. And they had to shut that alarm off in order to deliver these meds. So Jess says to the 14-year ICU nurse that she's going to take a shower. She insisted that Jess go home to take a shower. Remember when I was in the room, they insisted that I not leave. So now they insist Jessica go home to take a shower. So she's thinking she's going to be there three to four days. And so she thinks, well, I got a shower. So she buzzes home. She's back inside of an hour. When she comes back, she overhears two doctors and the 14-year ICU nurse say the family's not going to like this. So she said, what are they going to like? They said, well, we had to restrain Grace, which means strap her down to the bed. She said, what's the reason you needed to do that? And they said, well, because she wanted to go to the bathroom. They made her poop in the bed. One of the attorneys we work with asked me, Scott, do you think that you would have been restrained for wanting to go to the bathroom? I said, absolutely not. I would have had them do their job. But Grace, she just she's an obedient kid. So she just obediently followed their command. So they did this because they could. And I can prove it. That Sunday, after this attorney said this to me, God always gets me up at 3 a.m. for some reason when he wants me to do research. So I went through the doctors when, they, when they're in a room, they're required to write a report. So every doctor who came in the room during Grace's stay wrote a daily report. So that Sunday when I got up, I went through all 22 reports written by the doctors looking for the, the words Down syndrome and just process this, they documented that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times. That doesn't make any sense. That would be like the equivalent of me going into the hospital on, and then 36 different times they write 
white male. Is that necessary? So it clues you in as to what's going on. So now they use that strapping down to the bed. So now Grace is restrained. Of course, she's is agitated. So now they increase the dose of Presidex, the sedation med again. The two nurses that were in charge of the feeding tube, one is the 14-year ICU nurse and then an attending nurse. The attending nurse said, shouldn't we wait until Grace's numbers rebound to put in the feeding tube? And the ICU nurse said, no, we're going to do it. So they put in the feeding tube next. They use that as the next excuse to ratchet up the Presidex to the maximum dose. At 10.48 in the morning on Grace's last day, she was at max dose Presidex. So this is knocked out for surgery level. Grace was knocked out the rest of the day. In spite of being knocked out, at 11.25, they gave her a dose of lorazepam, which is an anti-anxiety med. I mean, she's not, doesn't have any anxiety, she's knocked out. At 5.46, they gave her another dose. At 5.49, three minutes later, another dose. And at 6.15, they gave her a two milligram dose of morphine as an IV push. The morphine package insert is on Grace's website under the tragedy tab. It's the most damning document there is to the hospital outside of maybe one more that I'll tell you about when we get there. The morphine package insert says to not combine those three drugs because it causes death. And remember I said they had to, they had to override the alarm to even administer those drugs. On top of that, the morphine package insert says that the reversal drug needs to be present at bedside and the patient monitored. They did none of that. After the morphine was delivered, no nurse stepped foot in that room until after Grace died at 727. At 6.02 is when Jessica monitored Grace's oxygen at 93%. At 6.15 is when they gave her the morphine. Now Jessica senses Grace is cold shortly after. So she asked the 14 rice units to take a temperature. She wouldn't do it. She said, that's normal. Just cover it with a blanket. Well, it's not normal. It's normal if your goal is to kill somebody. At 7.20, Jessica called us panicking. And she said, she'd call on a FaceTime call. She said, dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They will not come in the room. She estimated 30 nurses in the room at this point because they're not in the room, outside the room at this point because of shift change. And so Cindy and I start hollering, save our daughter. They holler back, she's DNR, do not resuscitate. That's the first we knew Grace was DNR. We holler back, she's not DNR, save our daughter. And this might be the most damning document. The doctor, we found out by getting a second set of records that this medical malpractice nurse said we were missing. We found out that the doctor put an illegal DNR on Grace at 10.56 that morning, eight minutes after the max dose of Presidex. Just think through that. When we said she's not DNR, save our daughter, no matter who put a DNR on her, it overrides that DNR and they're supposed to save your daughter. They would not step foot in the room. They violated seven state statutes in that process of the DNR order. 
Jessica ran out in the hall to find out what's going on. And a nurse had the order right up on her computer screen. And she read it off to Jessica that said the doctor put a DNR on Grace. We can't do anything about it. So we watched Grace die at 727 on FaceTime. Jessica crawled in bed with Grace and held her until I brought Cindy. And I couldn't come in because I had COVID. After Jess and Cindy cleaned Grace up, our pastor met us there, the funeral director, and the pastor was walking Cindy out in a wheelchair. And one of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and leaned down and said to Cindy, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. And that opened up, you know, our minds to this, this whole thing. And now, you know, six or seven months later, you know, 500 plus hours of research and, you know, smoking guns, you know, we've, we've got so much evidence. And one of the key pieces is after, you know, that evening, Jessica told us that there was an armed guard posted outside the room. You know, we don't know why. I presume to prevent the nurses from coming in and saving Grace. We know it wasn't an accident that an armed guard was there because when Jessica crawled in to hold Grace in bed until Cindy got there, the armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the entire time. So we can dive into the why, but if you have any questions now uh, about the story. I mean, I can, I can, it's impossible for me to fathom how difficult it was for you. I mean, the two of you, your, your, yourself and your wife, having to look at that and obviously, you know, to see Grace passing, but obviously see your other daughter having to, you know, be there present for, for that. And like no nurses coming to your aid, it's... <laughs> I mean, this is sound, you know, this is like what they were doing in Nazi Germany. And, and I know on your website, you've got Operation Paperclip and there's so many different things that, but I can only just, you know, this, how difficult that moment must have been for the whole family. Well, it's, it was, uh, you know, you, what happens is you, you, you replay this stuff. I mean, you can't help but replaying it. I'm just pulling out my genocide papers so that we can talk about that. But you can't, you know, the first two months after Grace died, two, three nights a week, I would get up, you know, at one, two o'clock in the morning, just sit up in bed and you, you replay in your mind. What if I would have done this? What if I would have done that? I mean, you can't help it. And, you know, Jessica being there, you know, she, she has to replay that. It, it's, it's very hard for her to talk on camera about it. Uh, she's done it a couple of times and I'm very proud of her for doing it. And, but it's very hard because you, you're reliving it. You know, I'm, I think God helped me during the time when I was in the hospital and then up until we started sharing the story to help me get ready for sharing it because you know, he worked in my heart to, to forgive. And, you know, you have to have that forgiveness. Otherwise, you can't tell the story um, objectively. And so, with, with the, like the doctors, I mean, is it a case of you're, you're going after the heart? Because, like, each individual that have been involved in that should be personally labeled. They shouldn't be able to hide behind the company because that's kind of the way a lot of organizations work and just through my own experience in life i've learned that when you go for the individual 
it's different because they no longer identify themselves as the employee of the hospital. What's your strategy for for trying to get justice? Yeah, great question. I I would say we don't have a strategy. We've been, um, you know, so initially we checked out what are the legal options. I didn't spend a lot of time on that, but I just wanted to get our arms around what's, what's possible. And, you know, strangely, there's state statutes that that really tie your hands, uh, partially because Grace was a legal adult. She was 19 years old. And so there's limitations for loss of companionship. In fact, there is no loss of companionship. Just process that. And most state statutes, I don't know how it is worldwide, but most state statutes are similar to the, the Wisconsin statutes. And if somebody's an adult, there's no loss of companionship which is the main claim. Uh, the medical malpractice claim is exceedingly hard to prove, especially with immunity from liability. Uh, there still is a, a way to pursue this. And I believe that door is gonna open, but we chose to worry first about getting this message out because thinking if we can get this message out, the more people that hear it, the more lives are gonna be saved. So that was the first priority. And that's what we're still under. But what's ha- been happening is God is opening some doors. One of the main doors that opened is Tom Renz uh, interviewed me and he fell in love with Grace and, and he's, he's a great attorney and he's, he's um, leading the strategy and some very significant developments happen. Yeah, he's, he's been on our show and he, we're actually uh, having him again this Thursday. Oh, fantastic. So, I mean, he's, there's some major developments that have happened uh, last week. They're so major, I can't talk about the details. It's just because it's just the way it is right now. But will there be a justice phase of this? I, I believe that's the door that is being opened right now for us. You know, Ultimately, though, the best justice of all, it doesn't mean there won't be consequences. But I mean, the, the real justice is, is from God. And, you know, what what we'd like to see is not just the doctor and nurse who did this to grace repent, but, you know, worldwide doctors and nurses know what's going on. They can't be this stupid. So they know what's going on. They're participating in a crime and they can repent. God will forgive if they repent and you don't want your worst enemy to spend eternity in hell. So that's what I'd like, you know, that would be the ultimate justice to me. And we'd like to see that happen. I do believe there will be a personal justice phase of this. And I think that it's also going to meld into a lot bigger justice You know, when this, this house of cards comes tumbling down. We'll see. I mean, uh, I am thankful that Tom is involved. He gives some fantastic guidance. And um, I, I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. And I mean, like I've seen all your documentation on the website. I mean, I know that you're you're so busy with all, you know, the interviews, getting the message out, which in turn, I believe, is making more people aware, not just of what's happened, but the way that you've structured your website. You're giving so much amazing information that basically when people see the story and you're the documentation behind it because you have done it fantastic you have so much documentation and even references to when you're giving points because a lot of the time there's a lot of people that are putting out information and it's hard to know what's right 
all the stuff that you're putting out there, all the information that you're saying, you're even giving the documentation and highlighting the points on the drugs that were administered. You've kind of, I, I would class it as ring fenced to stop, you know, people doubting what you're saying. And my own experience, because I know I've been uh, like the awakening is, is, is in its second year. And, you know, I've had a lot of doctors on every single thing that you said. And I mean, I have personal experience myself with people that I know the hospitals are killing people and like just sharing that with people to make them aware. And we're, we're gone to a stage now that people fear going to the hospital. I mean, I have noticed it for years. Like I copped it a long time ago, how corrupt the medical industry is, you know, between just kickbacks for, for uh, prescription drugs and everything. Like the doctors are lining their pocket the whole time and they just think it's okay. And it's not, but I never in my life thought that they were capable of actually killing people. And from my experience, even before researching your story, it's like, it's just confirming it and it's going on not just the state it's going on all around the world the whole lot has been orchestrated i have come to that conclusion it's strange you know when i talk with a lot of the hosts you know they've they've known this for uh, decades and you know i self-discovered it through this research and it's like because you can't believe it uh, you think this can't be true this can't be true and so that has been my attitude as the research has progressed and then all of a sudden, when you, you know, you do the research yourself and all of a sudden you come to that conclusion yourself, it, it changes your perspective. And my perspective has changed. And, you know, that's, that's why I will keep doing these podcasts as long as people will have, have me because, um, and our family is because we, you know, this is, you know, if, if one person's life is saved to, from this podcast today, that's another death prevented and Grace's death is not in vain. Absolutely. And one thing you might look at, because I've, I've looked at a lot of the things that are going on and I'm looking at the time frame it's taking from like at an early stage, people were realizing a lot of the corruption going on and like, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different levels of uh, people kind of understand what's going on. Some, you know, they just follow the, the news and the media. But regarding the legal side of things, there's a lot of fighting going on for two years. And I'm going down understanding sovereignty, common law and everything. And it's kind of taking control of the courts because I've seen so much. I, I've had a lot of court cases myself and I see how rotten to the core not just the medical system is but the the legal system as well and it's just like i hope that there's people that will also help you with that and kind of give you the knowledge of understanding how you can actually take this outside of their jurisdiction let's say because common law supersedes it like there's different versions as people are following ucc sovereignty and everything but every, like I've seen loads of people that are getting fantastic results with this. And it's just a case of, you know, if, if whatever legal system you're going through, don't throw in the towel no matter what happens, because, you know, there's times something might happen or they can have their so much protection 
that there's ways that you can actually get them. So just maybe perhaps look at that or even talk to people because I feel just, I mean, I've, I've read over 10 books. I have another 10 to read and I'm actually seeing just using it myself, just even signing things. Cause you, you, you mentioned during the conversation, the trickery that they use a lot of the times, you know, they're coercing people and people think they have no, you know, like I must do this and just having forms or just making them liable you know, right. If you have to sign something, if they force you writing under prejudice, there's, there's ways that we can try to get it. And perhaps right. it's something that you can, you know, include as well on your thing. Cause I know that you're like, you've a load of uh, different websites that you're given reference to, which is fantastic because I believe personally that you, like you mentioned, if one person, I, I think you're, you're, you're going to touch millions and I really appreciate and I honor you and I mean, I've looked at all the videos, as I say, and don't ever, don't ever knock you as a father. You are an amazing father and you've got, you've got so much love in you and compassion. And I know you're setting up a charity as well to do this. Your mission is big and you're going to actually make change. And I, I commend you on that. Well, Roy, it's hard to even take all of that, but I, you know, I'm thankful for your kind words. I just, know that none of this is possible unless God's behind it. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I got about a C minus as a dad. I think I said that earlier, but I want to get an A now. And, you know, I, I just want to, I just want to keep working on this. I mean, one of the blessings has been, um, we own a business and I, I haven't been normally working in that business six days a week and my guys basically taking it over. So, I've been now working on Grace's case six days a week. And you know, that's that's been quite a blessing to be able to have the time to do this because it takes time. You really have to be all in. And what you said about not giving up the legal perspective, it's going to take a lawyer that has the same type of attitude that they're not in it for anything other than the truth. Uh, because then they'll do the same thing I'm doing, but in from a legal perspective, you know, I, I can't do that from a legal perspective. That's not my background. Um, I'm analytical and, you know, the CPA background gave me the ability to, to do all this, this research, but, you know, from the legal perspective, um, there's lawyers that are stepping, stepping up. We've been contacted by a few and you know, we'll see how that shakes out. I think, I think the, that God is opening that door. And just with Thomas, because I mean, I mentioned a lot that I don't trust. He's one guy. I've listened to him speak in court. You can see that he's speaking from the heart. So you've got, you know, you've got a good guy in your corner with Thomas. I, I of course, believe that. I, I talked with him on the phone last week and, and uh, I said, Tom, I'm, we're all in with you. So however you guide us, that's where we're going. So. And I, I like it, with um, you're doing a lot of banners and everything, and I believe you're going to do it up until May of twenty three. So, is that getting much attention? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Yeah, so we have a dozen billboards up, and uh, that's a that's a fairly expensive proposition to do that. But you know, instantly again, you want to get this word out, and so we wanted to to make a. Grace's death known in our area. So we're, we called out the hospital specifically and, and um, how that started is, is kind of, a, you know, there's been a few 
few interesting twists, but the how that started was a kind of a funny story. One of the attorneys who who's he was really on fire when he read over the records and and um, but then as he saw you know how this would proceed given the restrictions in state statute. He, uh, I asked him a hypothetical. I said, if we wrote you a check for $250,000, what would you do with it? And he said, you'd be better off spending it on billboards. And so that, that gave me <laughs> the idea. And then, you know, Cindy and I and Jess put together these ideas for billboards. And then we approached, um, there's three billboard companies that basically own all the billboards along the major highway going through our area. And uh, only one would deal with us. The other two were afraid because of their national contracts. So this one was willing to deal with us. And at that point, we bought everything they had. And uh, so we've committed to billboards through uh, May of 2023. Has the hospital done anything to try to stop it or have they even contacted you? The hospital hasn't contacted us, but what they did do, we, we had a rally for Grace right outside the hospital on uh, April 8th. And between the billboard, the rally, and the local radio stations who are supporting us, uh, the hospital call, you know, so it's, it's created a stir here locally, which is, it's nice to see that because people need to be aware. But ultimately, a representative from the hospital called one of the radio stations and asked the radio station to take down all the podcasts that they did with me. And uh, they said, because we, the people in the hospital are fearful, we're having to beef up security and et cetera, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm not after, after getting revenge to them, but I mean, it was, you know, you know, what goes through your mind when somebody does that is that, why didn't you think about that before you killed my daughter? And before you killed a whole bunch of other people, we have uh, multiple people who've written to us on the website. We have a place for people to send their stories. So we have stories worldwide that are coming in, but several people locally have written us uh, about St. Elizabeth's Hospital and that their loved one was killed too. And some of these stories that are coming in are even worse than Grace's. I think, uh, like, because I saw that and I saw some of the stories that you've posted, but I think by the more people that come together, it's basically, it'll help in your case, you know, confirming how corrupt that they are. Absolutely. I, I want to spend just a few minutes on genocide so people um, understand that this is not a concept. Um, I think I have enough research already posted on the website to prove it. And I just want to hit a couple of high points that that people can see what I'm talking about. So, you know, genocide is taking out specific, specific groups. And I think the two groups that are targeted here are the disabled and the elderly. And it's it's been set up for a long time. So the elderly have been set up, if you think about it, 50 years ago, nursing homes were an oddity. Now they're commonplace. So that creates a mindset that old people should just be put someplace. They're not, they're not um, a useless piece of society anymore. With the disabled, just about every young couple, when they get pregnant, they start on these tests to find out if they're gonna have a child that has a problem. And a lot of those children are aborted. In the United States, 67% of Down syndrome children are aborted. In Denmark, 98%. 
Um, so Down syndrome children are not desired. And yeah, just so just just on that, because with the corruption, I have a friend here in Poland, and they were having a child. This is like the child now is about uh, eleven or twelve, but basically they were told the child was going to be Down syndrome, and they actually decided, yeah, we want to have the child. The child wasn't Down syndrome, so like basically people are just believing what they're told by a corrupt system. And irrelevant, I don't believe that that a child should be terminated anyway. But I mean, just we don't even know to what level that they're going. That's that's a fantastic add on to what I'm saying. Right. I mean, just because the medical professional tells you something, don't believe it. And, you know, but they have conditioned our society that the disabled and the elderly are really not a useful piece of society. They're the useless eaters. And to connect the dots financially, in the United States, 39% of the federal budget goes to those two segments of the population. 39% of the entire federal budget goes to those two segments of the population. So I drilled that math down. Remember, I'm a CPA. So you drill the math down and that equates to $32,000 per person. And if the average bonus payment to the hospitals for COVID is 100,000, the math says that's a three-year payback. So the government can pay the hospital 100 grand to take out a disabled person or an elderly person. And that has a three-year payback on that investment. So that's the math behind it. But that's not enough. So I want to just share a couple other things that that I that I found. This is on the website. The, the uh, a couple of proofs that are interesting to me. So the um, the stats are starting to come out. So people are accumulating the statistics. Two months ago, I looked for the stuff. It wasn't out yet. But then when I looked two weeks ago, it's out. And so a couple of stats that I want to highlight. Disabled females, so just process this. In Europe, disabled females are 11 times more likely to die if they go into the hospital with COVID as compared to non-disabled females. So that should make you wonder. In the United States, if you're disabled, you're more likely to be hospitalized 63% to 29% compared to if you're not disabled. So as it applies to grace, I, this is a question I, that I, I started posing these questions. And one question I had relative to grace being in the hospital, we know many people who were told they get to the emergency room, they have oxygen saturation, same as grace, and they are told to go home. Just wait it out. Well, why didn't they do that with Grace? Why did they want to admit Grace? Uh, it, it really gives you a, a perspective um, that, that changes how you start viewing this. If you start viewing it that this is what's happening, it, it's, uh, it seems to make a lot more sense. And I'll share another interesting um, piece of this puzzle. So you, you have complimented all the research. Well, we have 
significantly more research than I've even posted. When the hospital denied meeting with us, so we had all the records and we knew um, in the first week of November, they killed her. So we assembled all the records and all the reports the, we had a doctor go through everything with us and we submitted everything to the hospital requesting a meeting. And at that point, I naively thought that, well, the hospital would want to know this and really, and then change their process once it's exposed. I mean, really, I, it, was, it sounds dumb at, now when I look back, but that's what I was hoping for, that they would see it, repent, and then change. I mean, it's so obvious, um, but they denied the meeting. So on December 2nd, they wrote to us and said, we're not going to meet. And so that day, I filed complaints with the regulatory agency in Wisconsin that regulates the hospitals and the regulatory agency that regulates doctors. And I sent all the research. And both departments came back. They, they, they in, did investigations and both came back that the hospital and the doctor did no wrong. That's when I, that's really when I got clued in on, then I, I went down, okay, what's really going on here? Because how can they come to the conclusion they did no wrong? Anybody looking at this research, it's so obvious, isn't it, Roy? Absolutely, absolutely. But they did no wrong. So I realized, oh my gosh, the government's in on this. They're, they bought the hospitals to do this dirty work. So that got me on this whole Thing and it's concluded now with with genocide which i just shared so it's um, like i think every rabbit hole you go down everything's connected you just said there's no way they could be corrupt it's like they're pulling the strings in every direction and even like with the pc artists i know i've covered it in previous shows but you know the, the, the showing that that was orchestrated like the, we've 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 got documentation shown that they were buying billions of PCR tests in 2017 and 18. This was all orchestrated, the whole lot. And even the PCR tests, as you probably researched yourself, doesn't even test. Like they were doing it in frequencies above, you know, the, the, what the creator who had, you know, it's strangely enough died, you know, a year before this. So every single thing connected with this, you know, and like they're taking, if you look at the media, like, you know, you see Bill Gates on CNN and all these other corrupt media channels. And like, is he a, a medical profession? Not that I trust any medical profession. Well, I actually take that back. There is some genuine, decent uh, doctors and nurses out there. So, the, but he's there as if he's like a specialist when he's invested in all of it, you know. He said it was the best investment that he's ever done. You know, he's doing a TEDx or a TED talk talking about oh, a, a virus coming. So everything is orchestrated and, you know, everything that they've done. And my experience for a long time, I have just seen corruption at such a level in the hospitals. And it's like even between dirt, the, the filthy hospitals, leaving the windows open, as you said, the noise, they like we were questioning that recently, like everywhere in the hospital, they're constantly waking people up to give them, take their temperature and everything. It's all about keeping you sick and people don't question. I mean, I've been in hospital loads of times in my younger days. You don't question it. You just assume it to be right without saying, why are they not leaving us sleep to recover? Because the best recovery is when you actually have a good night's sleep and they do the opposite. Right. Right on. It's, it's, um, It's it's sick beyond anything that that people can imagine, and you know that's what we're 
we're hoping for. I mean, there's a, there's a physical side of this and there are good doctors. And I, I wanna actually just give a quick summary as to how um, I was treated in the hospital. So I went into a different hospital uh, three days after Grace died. I just about died the first night. Uh, the morning, the next morning, the nurse came in with a little container of pills and she said, I'd like to go through the, the pill regimen with you. I said, what do you have in there? She said, I have a multivitamin, a probiotic, vitamin D, vitamin E, and fish oil. And I said, what are you talking about? You guys don't believe in that stuff. And she said, well, we do here. And then they did a budesonide treatment. Everything was opposite of the way things happen with grace. And I believe God put me in that position to open my eyes to what was happening. And uh, I mean, he has opened my eyes and that, you know, that's, that's why all this research. And anyway, there's, you know, to, to um, close this up, I mean, there's a physical side of this story and a spiritual side. The physical side, of course, I went through the details, but what do you take out of that? And I shared it earlier. I mean, don't go to the hospital unless you absolutely have to, but more importantly, research and vet ahead of time uh, hospitals and clinics and individual doctors, et cetera, in your area that, that have not been bought. Uh, so that's the, that's the physical side of this, this story. And it's, it's imperative that you do because what's happening is real. This is an orchestrated agenda. And the ones who have been bought, they will take you out. And it's because that is, is part of the agenda. They believe that the planet cannot sustain the people that are on the planet. So they think they're doing good by taking people out. I mean, it is so warped, but that's what we're up against. Uh, so that's the physical side. The spiritual side is, is shedding light on evil. I mean, this story obviously sheds light on evil. It's one of, you know, there's countless stories that do that. You know, Grace's you know, I often wondered why Grace's story is is getting traction, but I you know, I think it's because of Grace. You know, she just had a love, and anybody that that spends any time on the website or that knew her, I mean, of course, you just fall in love with her. But the spiritual side of this is shedding light on evil, and so what does that mean? Well, what God wants to use stories like this for is to know that. You know, he isn't going to change. He's, he's pricking people's hearts. And if that happens to you when you hear the story, don't deny it. You need to make peace with God before, before you die. And the time is urgent. I mean, things are happening at an extremely fast pace. And if that happens to you and you haven't made peace with God yet, you know, pray to, for him to show you the truth. And you, you'll come to grips with that you've been duped. And the only person who will never dupe you that walk the face of this earth is God's son, Jesus. And that's where the truth will lead you to. So that's, that's uh, the two things that we want to have happen with Grace's story. And I mean, like, even as you were talking, you, you, you want justice, but you were even mentioning that you want them to see what they've done and to ask for forgiveness because I'm glad that you don't have that hatred in you because it can it's actually you that will hurt and your mission is beautiful and you know you're you're 
talking about a C. I don't you want you ever saying that again. You're an A plus. And I can see that from the thing. A child, you people can fake different things, but a child's love, unconditional love. And I could see that from, from your daughter, even dancing with her, lots of things. You're an A plus. And what you're doing now is is even more it's 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 fantastic and i know you will you have been on a load of shows and i commend you for it because you're putting so much time and energy into this in sharing your message but i believe that like there's loads of doctors out there coming on talking about different things they're talking about all oh, the pcr tests da, 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 da. it's going over people's heads this isn't and i i actually i really really appreciate what you're doing and i i believe you will you will change so many people's lives and I like send love to you and your family for what you've gone through. Oh, right. I mean, I got goosebumps with you seeing all that at the end. I mean, it's, it's humbling to be on these shows. Uh, I just, I'm so thankful that people want to, to hear the story. So thank you very much for having me. No problem. You might let people know the, the website and anywhere else that uh, you want them to, to find you. Yeah, so Grace's website is ouramazinggrace.net. And if you are a Facebook person, you can click on that tab and you can follow the story. That way we just launched the first newsletter yesterday. So if you're inclined that you would like to get uh, a newsletter from us, we'll be sending out monthly newsletters is the plan. And there's a place to sign up for the newsletter. If you are the type of person who wants to help out financially, we have a give, send, go. So all of those things are available. And you know, we just would like you to go on the website and take a look at at Grace. You know, spend the time getting to know her. That's that's the most important. And then if you want to look at the the research, it's all under the tragedy tab. And um, there's a, there's a ton of good information there that that hopefully connects the dots for you. Thank you very much, Scott. I'll make sure I put all the links both on the audio and the video. Thank you very much. So that's all for the Awakening Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're on shoot, and be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, subscribe, and make sure you check out Scott's website. It's beautiful. Until next week, take care.